Welcome to Read By, where today's finest authors read what matters to them, from their homes to yours. In this episode, Isabella Hamad reads a selection from Prisoner of Love by Jean Genet. To learn more from Hamad about her choice, check out the episode description. And now, Read By, Isabella Hamad. Hi, I'm Isabella Hamad, and I'm going to read a passage from Prisoner of Love by Jean Genet. When they look back, do the Palestinians see themselves with the same features and gestures, the same attitudes of body and limbs, in the same get-up as 15 years ago? Do they see themselves from behind, for instance, or in profile? That image of themselves they conjure up amid the events of the past, is it younger? Which of them remembers the scene I witnessed under the trees at Ajloun a few days after the fighting in Amman? The Fedayeen had built a little arbour with a roof of leaves, and inside was a table, three planks laid shakily on four roughly stripped branches, with four benches fixed in the ground around it. The month of Ramadan had brought the expected surprise of a crescent moon open towards the west. We'd eaten our evening meal out on the moss near the arbour, and were sitting replete around a bowl still warm but empty, listening to someone reciting verses from the Qur'an, so it must have been about eight o'clock. "'The man's a monster,' Mahjoub told me. That evening he'd seemed the hungriest of us all. "'He's the first head of state since Nero to set fire to his own capital.' What national pride I still possessed allowed me to reply, "'Excuse me, Dr. Mahjoub, we did just as well as Nero long before Hussein. A hundred years ago Adolf Thiers asked the Prussian army to shell Versailles, Paris and the Commune.' He did the job even more thoroughly than Hussein, and he was just as small. The evening star was out. Mahjoub, slightly taken aback, went to bed in his tent. A dozen or so soldiers, aged between about fifteen and twenty-three, almost filled the arbour, but they made room for me. One for day he stayed on sentry duty by the door. Then two men came in. They were fighters, still quite young, but with downy moustaches on their upper lips to show how tough they were. They weighed one another up, as the phrase goes, each trying to intimidate the other. Then they sat down facing one another, lowering themselves casually but stiffly onto the benches and hitching up their trousers to preserve a non-existent crease. I was sitting silent and alert, as I'd been told, on the third bench. The newcomer sitting next to me took his hand out of the left-hand pocket of his leopard trousers and, with a movement at once very human and yet seeming to belong to some rare ceremonial, produced a small pack of fifty cards, which he got his partner to cut. Then he fanned the cards out in front of them. One of the two swept them up and arranged them in a pack again, examined it, then shuffled the cards in the usual way and dealt them out between the two of them. Both looked serious and almost pale with suspicion. Their lips were tight, their jaws set. I can still hear the silence. Card playing was officially forbidden on the bases. Mahjoub had referred to it as a middle-class pastime for middle-class people. The game began. Gambling, and for a stake, filled both their faces with greed. They were equally matched, and first one and then the other grabbed the kitty. Around the two heroes, everyone tried to catch a brief glimpse of their swiftly concealed hands. Against all the rules, the onlookers behind each contestant made signals to the player opposite, who pretended to take no notice. I think they must have been playing a game something like poker. I was impressed by the way they both stared blankly at their hands, concealing their agitation and anxiety, by their brief hesitation over whether to take one, two or three cards, and by the speed of those thin fingers, the bones so fine it seemed they might break when the winner turned the cards over and gathered them in. 
One of the players dropped a card on the floor and picked it up so nonchalantly it reminded me of a film in slow motion. The indifference, even disdain on his face when he saw what it was, made me think it must be an ace. I thought people would think he'd been cheating, imitating an accident familiar to card sharpers. What little Arabic I knew consisted mainly of threats and insults, but the word sharmuta, muttered between the player's clenched teeth and lips gleaming with saliva, was quickly written back. The two players stood up and shook hands across the table, without a word, without a smile. Such dreary ceremony can be seen only in the casinos of Europe or Lebanon. Tennis matches can end like this too, but only in Australia. Sometimes a laugh is provided by a well-dressed lout who bends the cards lengthwise, either backwards or forwards. According to its position on the table, a card may be either the boat in which the cheat himself sails, or the first half of the beast with two backs, or a woman pressed down on the beach and opening herself up. If the croupier notices the resulting smiles where no smiles should be, he brings out a fresh pack of cards, his face and eyes as expressionless as someone doing up his flies in public. Obon is the name the Japanese give to another kind of game. Obon is the feast of the dead, who come back amongst the living for three times twenty-four hours. But the person who's returned from the grave is present only through the deliberately clumsy actions of the living, I interpret these as meaning, we are alive and we laugh at the dead. They can't take offence because they're only skeletons contemned to remain in a hole in the ground. It's merely their absence that the children, those underminers of ceremony, will bring up and install in their apartments. We'll stay in the graveyard, we shan't be in anyone's way. We'll only be present if your awkwardness gives us away. The invisible dead are seated on the finest cushions and offered good things to eat and gold-tipped cigarettes to smoke, such as Leanne de Pouge was offered when she was 23. The kids pretend to limp. It seems that in the month leading up to Obon they practice limping, the better to leave the absent corpse behind in the races. These come to a sudden end. Shin bones, skulls, thigh bones and finger bones fall to the ground and all the living laugh. An act of irony and affection had been enough to give the dead person a taste of life. The game of cards, which only existed because of the shockingly realistic gestures of the fedayeen, they'd played at playing, without any cards, without aces or knaves, clubs or spades, kings or queens, reminded me that all the Palestinians' activities were like the Oborn feast, where the only thing that was absent, that could not appear, was what the ceremony, however lacking in solemnity, was in aid of. Nine Two Wise Read By is produced and commissioned by New York's Nine Two Y Unterberg Poetry Center, a home for live readings and literature for over 80 years. To invite more authors into your home, subscribe to Nine Two Wise Read By wherever you download podcasts. If you're able, please visit 92y.org slash help now to donate to support Nine Two Y and our new digital programming. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Find more great recordings at 92y.org slash redby.